Welcome to The District, a podcast by the spectator world from the nation's capital. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by Amber Athey. And today we're going to be talking first and foremost about a breaking news story. Uh, we have some slight turnover time on these podcasts, so by the time you're listening to this, there may be more details that have emerged. Uh, but what we know right now is that multiple people have been shot in a New York City subway station in Brooklyn. Uh, it happened during rush hour on Tuesday morning, and at least 13 people have been injured. That's the count right now. Uh, we're not quite clear yet whether this is just another act of criminal violence or whether it's a terrorist attack. There have been reports that police are looking for explosive devices. Uh, They're also looking for a man who's believed to be wearing a worker's vest and a gas mask. Likely more will be known by the time you listen to this, but that's what we're staring at right now. And the images that are coming out of the subway station are horrific. Uh, Smoke filling the air, uh, blood spattered across the the subway platform. It's truly horrifying. And whatever this turns out to be, you know, whether, whether, again, this is a terrorist attack or an act of crime... It does dovetail into a a trend that we want to talk about today, and that is spiking crime across American cities in particular. Crime is up in New York. Crime is up here in Washington, D.C. It's becoming a major political issue here in the United States ahead of the 2022 midterms. And it's one that has put uh, Democrats and progressives in particular, progressive prosecutors, progressive who have tried to take a novel approach to crime, you know, bail reform, not locking up as many people, it's put them in a very awkward position. And Amber, I know you've written about this, you're writing about this right now, but it's, uh, this is becoming a major issue this year, isn't it? It is. And I am kind of blown away by the fact that Democrats did not consider the fact that if they were going to try to implement criminal justice reform, that maybe a pandemic where a lot of the country is out of work or not in school, maybe would not be the best time because that naturally creates conditions where people are more likely to commit crimes. And um, over the past two years, especially, we've seen rises in carjackings because there are youth who would otherwise be staying out of trouble by being in school or after school programs or extracurricular activities out running around in cities with nothing else to do. We've seen an uptick in armed robberies. And across the board, the American public has been clamoring for the opposite of what Democrats were campaigning on in 2020, which is defunding the police, or at the very least, redirecting police resources to things like mental health specialists and social workers to bail reform and bond reform and a whole host of other criminal justice oriented policies. Now we're starting to see some of the natural consequences of that, which have been, again, accelerated by the pandemic. And I think the first case that really got people to question what exactly it was we were doing and if if these policies were as compassionate as they claimed to be was the Waukesha attack in Wisconsin. That's right, right? Wisconsin? Yeah. yeah. And uh, this, this person who had a decade-long criminal rap sheet, including dozens of violent crimes, was released on a very almost criminally low bail and went on to ram his SUV through a Christmas parade, killing multiple people. That I think was when the tide really turned for the claim from the left that criminal justice reform was compassionate because 
of course, it is not compassionate for all of these victims. I think that you can also make the case that the same thing happened in in Sacramento. Our our friend Gil Sewell writes about this this morning on our website. Uh, The shooting that happened earlier this month, it it left six people dead. It injured at least 12. And uh, one of the shooters there was out of jail on early release. And, And one of the victims was an innocent woman who happened to be passing through Sacramento. She was on her way to New Mexico to start a new life. And and she's gone. She's dead because of this attack. And it makes you realize just the, the power dynamics that are at play here, right? Because she uh, she was in the news for one day. And yet Kyle Rittenhouse, for example, who shot three people who were white in self-defense uh, during that, that horrifying riot that took place in Kenosha, he was in the, the news headlines for months because his crime, supposedly his crime, fit the narrative that uh, the news media wanted to try to perpetrate. So I think that's another galling thing about all of this is just how understated so many of these cases are and and how invisible they are. Another case here in Washington, D.C., and and this, I think, really drives home, we can talk more about this, the the senselessness and the nihilism of some of these crimes. Uh, A man was out for a walk by the Eastern Market Metro Station, where I used to go all the time with my wife. I mean, it used to be a fairly nice area, even if there was crime was a little bit higher there. Uh, he was out for a, a walk with his uh, baby in a stroller at like 1030 in the morning and someone approached him and threw a brick at his head and then threw a brick at the baby and they both had to go to the hospital and they're both fine, thank God. But that's just the, the senselessness that we're dealing this with here. It, I mean, it It is a deeper problem than just a crime wave. There's something fundamentally wrong. And you mentioned that Sacramento case and one of the perpetrators was was out of jail from a from a prior crime and actually one of the shooters ended up being released within two days he apparently had posted five hundred thousand dollar bail and was out of prison after just being involved in this deadly shooting so clearly nothing has changed there and you talk about you know the way that certain crimes are elevated because they fit a certain media narrative and others are diminished. And I think that's been happening for a long time. And recently it's been happening in regards to criminal justice reform, but the left used to do this as well with crimes committed by illegal immigrants. Remember the um, the young woman in California, Kate Steinley, I think her name was, who was shot um, by an illegal immigrant who had been deported multiple times and was waving around a firearm and shot her on a dock in San Francisco. And uh, there ended up being a law passed in her name, Kate's Law. But that was something that Democrats really didn't want to talk about because there was a direct link between their policies of catch and release and allowing people to come back into the U.S. over and over again, even after they're deported multiple times or even if they have a criminal rap sheet. And this horrific crime that had snuffed out the life of a really promising young woman. Yeah, and it's... If you drill down into the kind of criminal justice reform policies that you're talking about, and I I think I probably uh, support some of those, you know, making police wear body cameras, for example, or making it easier to fire bad cops, uh, that's certainly an issue in and of itself. But it it is one of those things where I think the smartest thing I ever saw written about criminal justice reform came from, of all people, David Frum, who is rarely the, the smartest person on anything. But he had a really good column back several years ago where he said, Look, the time may be now for criminal justice reform, 
Uh, certainly, we should be asking questions like why we have such a high incarceration rate. But proceed with caution, because the reason the public supports this and tolerates this at the moment is because crime has plummeted since the 1980s, right? That crime wave essentially ended. Uh, it, it went way down in the 90s, and we were living in a much safer America. And he said the second that starts to tick up again, they're going to reconsider. This is all going to go out of vogue. And that was almost prophetic, right? Because that's exactly what's happened. And not only has any kind of mandate for those policies, I think, evaporated, but you're seeing the deadly consequences of those policies, like you were saying, of bail reform. If somebody who's dangerous gets out of prison or gets out of jail easily, that can have very real consequences. And look, even Donald Trump signed into law the first, what was it, the First Step Act, this criminal justice reform package. But I think the the landscape has just changed markedly over the past you know, six or seven years, and especially over the last two years. And even when Donald Trump signed on to the First Step Act, just it wasn't long after that, that we saw the summer of riots. And I thought it was a huge folly, and I still do, for him to campaign so heavily on passing that piece of legislation, because it so quickly became passe uh, because of the events of the summer of 2020. And I think there's more of a a local angle to this as well, because one of the things that people don't realize in regards to the Virginia parents movement is it wasn't just about, I mean, there were a lot of things it was about. We mostly think of it about it in terms of schools. So we think of parents going to school board meetings and protesting things like the transgender bathroom issue or transgender sports issue. We think about masks in schools and critical race theory But there was another really big issue in Virginia during this past gubernatorial election, and it was, in fact, crime. There had been a swath of George Soros-backed prosecutors who were elected in Virginia during the last election cycle who went on to implement a lot of these similar policies regarding bail reform, bond reform, and um, some of the other sort of soft on crime measures, aside from the holding police accountable part of it. And Virginian parents were really horrified by the outcome of this because they saw this really bizarre, twisted sense of justice where violent criminals were being released very quickly without real justice for their victims. Buddha Biberai is one example of a local attorney who was really using, I think, (laughs) too much of her personal view on justice to allow certain people to get away with with a lot of really horrible things and has still to this day worked really hard to justify some of her actions. So this is uh, something that's not just, you know, on on a national level when we talk about the president and Congress and what they're doing, but these are decisions that are often made by these local um, state's attorneys, prosecutors, and other unelected and and unelected bureaucrats who have really tried to, I think, infiltrate a lot of the the local courts. And there's been a backlash to that as well. Against the ideologues. Yeah. And I think if there's if those ideologues were to make an accusation against our side for being ideological, right, it might be that we're taking specific instances and blowing them up, blowing them out of proportion in order to support policies that we want to see passed. The problem is the data backs this up completely. 
right? It's not just that you have one horrific incident in DC here, one horrific incident in New York here. It's that crime, violent crime really is up across all these cities. I mean, something like 25%, I think, in Washington, DC. The numbers are, are palpable and they're horrifying. I, I, I have a friend who lives in Southeast DC, not across the Anacostia River, river but right by, by the ballpark down there, which is supposed to be this gentrifying up and coming neighborhood. And you know, she's been robbed. Her boyfriend's been robbed. She knows somebody who got shot on their block. Like it, it's just out of control. And it, it's the narrative is so often controlled by an elite class that is shielded from all this because they don't live in places like this. I don't live in places like this. I live in a nice little Virginia neighborhood where everything is safe and we don't have to worry about that level of violence, but it, it really is real and it exists. And it's interesting how th- there have been flashpoints for this, right? In in, with Balt- it began in Baltimore in 2015 after the, the Freddie Gray riots where the cops kind of pulled back. And Baltimore has just been a wash in crime ever since. And elsewhere, it's been ticking up too, but it's especially been the, these 2020 riots, the, the George Floyd riots. It, it just got out of control and it never got back under control. And you wonder, so much of that is psychological, right? Is it, Certainly there, there's a policy solution, but you wonder if there has to be a cultural solution too. I mean, how do you how do you deal with how do you respond to and assess somebody who's willing to throw a brick at a baby? It's it's a very confounding question. It really is. And in DC, we've been seeing the rise of these homeless tent cities as well. And so many of the homeless are mental mentally ill, and that can lead to an increase in violence as well when you don't have a solution for these drifters who, I mean, might be schizophrenic, might be addicted to drugs or alcohol and don't really have anything left to lose. And uh, there seems to be really no solution for dealing with them. You brought up Baltimore. And I remember there was really a quite aggressively ignorant response to crime in Baltimore from the media elites, because there was a time when Trump and then sort of an unknown entity, Kim Klasik, were talking about the streets of Baltimore as being crime infested, having rats, being dirty, all of which is, is true, but the elites in the media didn't want to hear it. And so they accused them of being racist. And they would post these pictures. I think it was Molly John Fast specifically. <laughs> who is one of the most privileged people in Sorry the to introduce her into the conversation. <laughs> I know. Way, I feel but... bad. I, I really didn't want to mention her, but here we are. But she, I mean, she's one of the most privileged people in the country. I think her parents are like really famous authors and artists. But she posted this picture of the inner harbor of Baltimore, which is basically the only <laughs> like five block <laughs> radius of Baltimore that is actually decent. And even then, there's still, you know, homeless encampments under the bridges and things like that. I grew up in Maryland, so I I grew up going to Ravens and Orioles games. And you don't venture outside of Inner Harbor. That's just how it is. But she posted this picture of Inner Harbor and was like, I just can't imagine looking at this and not thinking that Baltimore is this beautiful, shiny (laughs) beacon. And it's like you have to be so out of touch to think that that is representative of the city as a whole. And I honestly think that's how they look at places like DC and New York too. I mean, they hang out in Manhattan or in Georgetown or even, you know, certain parts of Capitol Hill 
and assume that that's representative of the whole area. And they use that as a way to dismiss people's very real concerns about crime. And it's only very recently when that crime has started creeping into those very nice areas that I think some more honest people on the left are starting to realize that there is a very, very real problem. She saw like the Dick's hard times with the outdoor seating on the Inner Harbor. And she was like, what is this? This is so nice. There must not be any crime. <laughs> she saw in... the aquarium. And she yeah, was she saw like, the wow, National this place Aquarium. Is great. <laughs> <laughs> and she paid $52 to go inside because she can afford it. And she was right. like, I don't see what's wrong with this at all. No, that, that's hilarious. I, I, you heard me laughing in the background. I didn't know about that. And I, I, I'm familiar with Baltimore because I had a girlfriend who was from just north of there. So we used to go into the city all the time. And I also used to take my wife there from time to time. I, I used to really like it as a city, but I was very conscious that I was doing what I, what you might describe it as the white people tour, right? Or like the outsider tour. And that is you drive in, you park in a garage downtown, you go to the Inner Harbor, you know, Dick's Hard Times or Phillips or whatever the restaurant there is. You walk around the bay and you go up to Federal Hill where you get that incredible view of the city, especially at night. It's beautiful. And then if you want to keep drinking, you go back into the cross street neighborhood afterwards um, and maybe stop by that big market that they have there. And you can do all that. And that's maybe like a 10 block area. You can do all that and it can be safe and you can just completely ignore what's going on through the rest of the city. And I think this is the case in a lot of American urban areas, which is you have these rarefied little spots that can be shown off to the world and that can try to hide what's really going on. I mean, if you come to DC and you go to just the wharf, right? Or just George, even just Georgetown, you're not going to think, oh, wow, this place has a major crime problem. But, but it does. And uh, yeah, it's just, you understand just how privileged that position really is. And also just how much crime is an issue that affects uh, the people who are disadvantaged, people who are marginalized, people who don't have enough. I, I go back to that poor woman, I think in Minneapolis, who had her shop torched during the riots there. And she was telling a camera, cameraman, you said Black Lives Matter, yet I'm a Black woman and look what you did to my shop. These are the victims here. These are the people who are being affected by it. Uh, you know, not carpetbaggers into Baltimore for a few hours like myself. And remember, they uh, they shot that retired police chief, David Dorn, in, uh, in St. Louis, I believe it was, who was trying to protect a local business. And he was a black man. And when you look at every poll after poll of what people in impoverished communities actually want in terms of policing, they want a higher police presence. They want harsher uh, punishments for crimes. And really just the opposite of what the people who claim to care about them the most are proposing. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.